You are listening to Uptown Radio. It's Thursday, February 18th, 2021. I'm Haley Zhao. And I'm Arcelia Martin. Overnight subway closures have inconvenienced New Yorkers. But do New York City subways need to run around the clock? When they did that, that really messed me up. Uh-huh. I would have to take the Uber to a bus stop. And New York lawmakers are debating how to spend $23 billion in federal COVID funding. Hopefully they'll, they'll think carefully about where the needs are and target the money accordingly. President Biden is expected to lift the so-called Muslim ban, but the future remains uncertain for immigrants. Most uh, individuals that were um, banned under the Muslim ban are still feeling um, that their immigration status is in limbo. And advocates are pushing for a new bill that would change jail time for parole violations. All that and more on Uptown Radio. But first, the news. From Columbia Radio News in New York, I'm Laila Dos. New York Governor Andrew Cuomo surprised the state press court today by not holding his daily briefing. His administration is under pressure after the FBI launched an inquiry into his handling of data on nursing home deaths. The governor admitted on Monday that his office had withheld data on deaths related to COVID-19. Meanwhile, members of his own party have accused him of making a threatening phone call to an assemblyman. Mayor Bill de Blasio told MSNBC he wasn't surprised to hear the charge. That's classic Andrew Cuomo. Um, A lot of people in New York State have received those phone calls. Two vaccination sites will open in New York City tomorrow. The Empire Outlets on Staten Island and Martin Van Buren School in Queens will provide shots to residents of their respective boroughs. Mayor de Blasio says he expects to receive more supplies starting tomorrow. We again are hoping that by tomorrow our supply will be back to where it was normally. That's still way less than we need. I want to emphasize normal is not enough. Status quo is not enough. New York State began its third phase of vaccinations on Monday, opening up eligibility to those with chronic health conditions. Still, appointments are hard to come by. The MTA has approved an increase in tolls at bridges and tunnels. The agency will delay a similar hike for subway, bus, and rail fares until the summer. New York Easy Pass users will have to pay $6.55 instead of $6.52 per trip. Meanwhile, non-pass drivers will pay $10.17 instead of $9.50. If you haven't had a chance to look out the window, it's snowing in the tri-state area today. A winter weather advisory remains in effect until 7 p.m. tomorrow night. New Yorkers can expect between 2 and 4 inches of snow today with highs in the upper 20s. The temperature in Central Park right now? 27 degrees. For Columbia Radio News, I'm Laila Dos. New York State Department of Education issued new guidelines this week saying schools cannot require parental consent for COVID testing in order for students to attend school in person. They soon walked back the decision. I asked employment and education lawyer Bill Lawler if state or the city has the legal right to mandate COVID-19 testing for students. From a legal point of view, does the city have any legal standing for mandatory testing? It's not mandatory, it's coercive. First of all, the, the backdrop is that you know, no test should ever happen without, without consent. Um, the question is whether the schools can condition attendance at the schools uh, upon giving the consent. I think it's an untested proposition whether the city can properly um, coerce um, a student to, to take the test in, as, in order to allow that student to return to the building. Does the state have the legal jurisdiction to potentially overrule this? I mean, that, that's an interesting question. I, and I don't, <laughs> uh, I don't know the answer to that. Um, you know, could, if, if push came to shove and the New York, in New York City schools were to sue the state 
um, to get clarity over which set of guidelines, um, you know, whether the, the, the state um, the state parameters versus the city parameters should prevail. Candidate, I don't know the answer to that question. So what about students with disabilities? Will they be subjected to the same regulations? You know, that gets right to the heart of um, of these issues, right? You know, we saw with the vaccine recently with the, the waitress at the Red Hook Tavern, um, you know, the situations like that and the exceptions to the rule are often the, the situations that um, get to court and create um, murky situations for um, uh, in terms of the guidance. So the um, there was the story about the, this waitress um, really gets to the heart of these cross currents New Yorkers are experiencing with respect to the vaccine. Um, you know, small business owners, especially restaurants, have a keen interest in reopening and bringing customers back. And employees want to get back to work, and so everybody's looking to find the right balance. You know, from an employment perspective, um, the law and guidance, both for employers and employees, are not models of clarity. Um, there was a, a lot of there was much-awaited EEOC guidance in December that said employers can um, generally can mandate as a condition of employees being at work that the employee get vaccinated. This is obviously a big issue for a small business owner, you know, including uh, or especially something like a bar or a restaurant. On the other hand, there's a the, the laws and regulations um, are a bit of a patchwork, and they recognize that employees um, may have good faith reasons not to want the vaccine. So a lot of people are familiar with some of these issues in the context of New York's religious exemption um, and it, it, it being eliminated. Um, but safety concerns are generally considered legitimate concerns and need to be recognized. Um, these concerns can be resolved often with accommodation. Someone works from home, for instance. But obviously, that doesn't always work. But I think as things develop, I think employers um, thinking about mandatory vaccines for employees will, will end up encouraging but not requiring vaccines. So are teachers considered employees in the same way as restaurant workers? That's a good question. I don't know the answer to that. I mean, I, I think that there would be a much stronger argument for um, the employer uh, being the schools to mandate vaccines. All right. Thank you so much, Bill. Thank you. Controversy continues to surround Governor Cuomo's handling of COVID-19-related deaths at nursing homes. Katie Anastas reports. Last March, Maria Porteous and her brother visited their dad at a nursing home in St. James, New York. It was his 80th birthday. When we tried to get in, they told us he was in lockdown. And while I was upset, I remember my brother saying to me, you know what, it's better. It's better because at least he's behind those walls and he's safe. A few weeks later, she got the call that her dad had a fever. Porteous and her brother were allowed to visit for 10 minutes. Her dad died later that afternoon. His was counted as a nursing home death. But thousands of others, those who left their nursing homes and died at hospitals, were not. Porteous and a dozen others joined a protest in downtown Manhattan on Wednesday, carrying photos of lost loved ones and signs accusing Cuomo of covering up the full nursing home death toll. Every day you saw him on the TV, you know, almost showboating about how well and how wonderful he's doing of a job. Meanwhile, this is really reality of what happened. A state investigation found that the total number of nursing home deaths doubled to 15,000 once those who died at hospitals were counted. 
Last week, a top Cuomo aide admitted in a leaked phone call that the state delayed publishing its COVID data for fear that it would be used against them in a Justice Department investigation. Cuomo said they needed to focus on immediate pandemic crises. Everyone was busy. Everybody was here every day. We're in the midst of managing a pandemic. There was a delay in providing the press and the public all that additional information. State lawmakers are demanding Cuomo be stripped of his emergency power, resign, or even be impeached. The Albany Times Union reported the FBI and federal prosecutors have also launched an investigation into nursing home deaths. In 2018, the Greater New York Hospital Association donated more than a million dollars into a Democratic committee that backed Cuomo's last primary campaign. Critics have linked this donation to Cuomo giving hospital and nursing home executives immunity from lawsuits related to COVID outbreaks. Katie Anastas, Columbia Radio News. Since opening in 1904, the New York City subway has run 24 hours a day. But that changed last spring when Governor Cuomo shut the subway from 1 to 5 a.m. for cleaning to prevent the spread of COVID-19. Beginning next week, trains will close one hour later and open one hour earlier. As we inch closer to a pre-pandemic schedule, Renee Roden asks, Is 24-7 subway service sustainable for New York City? This fall, Delilah Caspers worked for the Board of Elections, and no subway in the morning was a problem. So we needed it, well, I needed it, because we have to be at the polling sites at 5 o'clock in the morning. With the trains shut down until 5 a.m., she couldn't get to work on time. When they did that, that really messed me up. Uh -huh. I would have to take the Uber to a bus stop. The extended overnight closure is unprecedented, but the subway being in crisis is not. 2017 was a bad year for the MTA. The system flooded. Elevators and trains got stuck, trapping passengers for hours. Governor Cuomo declared a state of emergency. In response, a group of transit scholars offered an unpopular solution. Shut the subway down at night. Uh, when that recommendation came out, it was very headline grabbing. Rachel Weinberger helped come up with that idea. She's with the Regional Plan Association, a nonprofit that advises the city government. In 2017, the RPA recommended the city subways close from after midnight to 5 a.m. each weeknight, permanently. There was a lot of pushback. So, so why the backlash? So, um, I mean, part of it just is visceral and that, hey, we're New York and that's not how we do it. But she says if the subway closed nightly, New York could do what it's doing now and rely on buses to carry passengers. It's what most mass rapid transit cities like London or Tokyo do. And Asian and European systems already have an advantage, according to Weinberger. Because there's more support from their national governments, which, by which I mean money. Before the pandemic, the MTA announced a $37 billion improvement plan for the subways. But now the plan's fate is uncertain. Weinberger says the repairs the system needs could be done faster and cheaper if the trains stopped running each night. So it's an old system, and it just requires a lot of... of love and, and feeding. There's been a lot of uh, just sort of temporary repairs. But Mitchell Moss disagrees. He's the director of the Rudin Institute for Transportation at NYU. Before the pandemic, the number of night riders on the subway could fill Yankee Stadium twice. 
That's only 1.5% of the subway's daily ridership, but Moss says they're important. The 24-hour allows people to work longer. It allows people to come and go to office maintenance jobs, to hospital jobs, to healthcare jobs. The subway has been the key part of the New York where all types of people come together. At a board meeting today, MTA Chairman Patrick Foy said federal relief has prevented the need for any further service cuts for the city's riders until 2023. No word on when 24-hour subways will resume. Renee Roden, Columbia Radio News. Four years ago, President Trump issued the so-called Muslim ban, restricting immigration from a list of countries. One of Biden's first initiatives as president was to remove the ban. Now, advocates in New York City are hopeful that family members may be able to join them here. But the path to immigration remains uncertain. Leila Dose reports. The U.S. State Department estimates that more than 40,000 families in New York and across the country were directly impacted by the Muslim and African ban. Somali-American Afnan Selim lives in Ohio now. She came from Turkey as a refugee in 2010. Her 64-year-old father, Muhammad, lives in Malaysia. They hope to be reunited here. Meanwhile, they keep connected on the phone. I talk to him like first thing in the morning and then at nighttime when I'm going to bed. And it's been like that for the 10, 12 years that we've been here. But even though Biden has lifted the ban, many roadblocks to immigration remain. Because of COVID, Trump, the Trump administration put like um, further restriction on people coming into the country. So um, as of right now, there's no updates on his case. Rafael Urena is an immigration lawyer in New York. He says even with the ban lifted, there are still restrictions on travel into the U.S. during the pandemic. This includes other limits on immigration marked to preserve American jobs. The process is also delayed by staff shortages in agencies and embassies, plus a backlog of over half a million cases. Urena says for clients getting into the immigration pipeline now, the process could take years. You've waited three years and you've missed the entire infancy of your child, and now you're looking at another two-year to three-year delay because of the backlogs, is heartbreaking. Sobha Wadhia is a professor of law at Penn State. She says the Biden administration could shorten the process if the applications didn't have to start again from scratch. Will the State Department automatically reopen the immigrant visa applications um, that were denied because of the ban, or will the individual have to um, make a new application, pay a new fee, um, have a new visa interview in order to um, be admitted? Um, so that's, you know, one big question. ACLU lawyer Manar Wahid says that while she's hopeful, the Biden administration has a lot of work to do. The current administration is working off of a system that has been largely destroyed. For now, Afnan doesn't know when her father will be able to join her. She's set to graduate college in August. He missed my middle school graduation, high school graduation, so I'm hoping that he makes it to my college graduation. She hopes she won't have to celebrate with her dad through a screen. Laila Dos. Columbia Radio News. There's more to come. Stay with us.
how COVID has influenced the fashion industry. New York lawmakers debate how to use federal COVID funding. Century 21, one of New York City's staple designer retailers, is relaunching in South Korea. These stories and more coming up. You're listening to Uptown Radio. I'm Haley Jeff, and I'm Arcelia Martin. Here in New York, we just wrapped up Fashion Week. It's been a really tough year for the retail industry. So today, I've invited Christina Moon, a fashion studies scholar and anthropologist at Parsons School of Design at the New School, as a guide for this morning. So we're almost a year into the pandemic. What challenges have you seen in the fashion industry? Sure, the challenges have to do with inequities. Um, what we've seen is a lot of, of course, retail and store closing, widespread job loss. The New York fashion industry specifically employs over 180,000 workers, actually. It's still 6% of the, of the workforce within the city. But here's the thing you also don't see, is how, um, how the local industry is so intimately tied and connected to workers around the world. So I think for me, the enormity of this, of the challenge uh, is seeing how um, our local industry is reliant upon workers in other places. Um, and who, who is the most vulnerable? Who is bottoming out um, in the system? And who gets to continue as it, as it does all along? Given your background in sustainability and fashion, what do you think the last year has done in terms of the future of fast fashion? Right. Big question. I think for us, um, sustainability has always been spoken about in terms of being environmentally friendly and environmentally conscious. But what was always puzzling to me is that this word sustainability never quite ever included an ethical dimension of social justice within the global supply chain. What it means to um, hire workers who are getting paid a living wage, who have the right to collective bargaining, who are working in, um, in um, appropriate working conditions. Um, and, you know, we just tend to see that this problem is somewhere else and we don't and we don't see it so we don't really quite think about it when we put on our clothing we just think wow amazing like i got that on sale uh, a pair of jeans that was 18 dollars it's sitting in the cart i can purchase it and you know in just a few days it's going to be right outside my doorstep amazing it's like magic you know without really thinking about the breakdown of what that actually all means. If you could kind of impart like a lasting me- message to consumers, to our listeners, people who buy clothes, what would you want people to know? Kind of like that one sentence where you're like, you wish you could take people by the shoulders and shake them. Um, what would you want to say to them? When you're staring at those beautiful in- uh, images in Instagram and you're about to purchase your clothing, I I think you should question your ability to have what you want whenever you want it in whatever amount and quantity you want it for whatever price you want it. That um, to be able to have 
that kind of privilege and access to something, um, I think really should be questioned. Well, Christina, thank you so much for being with us today. I really appreciate you sitting down and talking to us. Thanks. This has been Christina Moon, fashion studies scholar and anthropologist at Parsons School of Design. Every year, the state legislature and the governor have to negotiate the annual budget by the end of March. That's just in six weeks. But this year, New York State is desperate for money. In total, it's facing an estimated $50 billion deficit. The federal government has promised New York State and local governments some $23 billion in funds. Still, as Megan Zarez reports, with the pandemic, budgeting has gotten even more complicated. Here's how New York's budget process works normally. The governor proposes an executive budget with, uh, with, you know, revenue changes, spending detail. That's James Parrott. He researches economics and fiscal policy at the New School. He says the next step for the budget is to go to the legislature, where Cuomo, the Assembly, and the State Senate fight it out. And then there's a three-way negotiation to resolve differences, and usually they go right down to the wire on March 31st. But this year is different for a few key reasons. Reason number one. It's not just bringing back the economy. It's bringing back the economy different. That was New York City Comptroller Scott Stringer. He was testifying in last week's virtual state assembly hearing. New York lawmakers don't just need to keep things like hospitals and schools running. They need to rebuild things, too, like the entertainment and hospitality industry. Here's James Parrott again. The state also has to has to make some decisions about uh, how to how to end the year for the current budget. The current budget, meaning the fiscal year we're in right now, 2021. That's reason number two. Lawmakers are scrambling to balance two budgets at the same time, this year's and next year's. There was an $8 billion cut in local aids. That is still part of the budget. But those cuts haven't been detailed yet. Those budget cuts might impact things like food assistance programs, government staffing, or hospital funding. But what about that $23 billion in federal aid? That brings us to reason three. Here's Scott Stringer again. But it is important to remember that this help will be temporary, and it should be used as such. The federal stimulus is Band-Aid money. And it can be hard to build a long-term budget and hire people when that money isn't going to be there year after year. And because the money is coming from the federal government, there are different rules for how it's distributed. There's more. The federal government is proposing to split up the money so that some counties upstate will start off with more aid per resident compared to, say, New York City. But there aren't hard borders between counties as we're seeing with the vaccine rollout. One vaccination site is changing its policy tonight after out-of-towners filled up appointment sheets. So one county's residents might use another county's medical resources when their own are scarce. The next step in the process is a public hearing that'll be held next week on the 23rd. But that's just the start of it. The money from the federal government still needs to make it through the U.S. Senate back in Washington. Megan Zarez, Uptown Radio.
During the pandemic, the move to reduce prison populations has taken on special urgency. Last week, the state Senate began consideration of a bill known as the Less is More Act. The bill aims to reduce incarcerations over so-called technical violations of parole. Karen Monarajo has more on the bill and movement behind it. In 2018, Michael Hendrickson was released from a three-year prison sentence in Rochester, New York, and placed on community supervision. He began reimagining his life, and for the first year, things were going great. I hit the ground running. I myself enrolled in school. I had worked very diligently to catch up on my past child support that I had incurred while I was incarcerated. Um, had my own place to live, you know, and I was just really doing well. But then his parole officer spotted a picture of his kids in Hendrickson's apartment. Visiting his kids would violate the rules of his parole. And so, while the officer investigated, Hendrickson returned to jail. He waited for six months to appear before a judge and then was released. Kendra Bradner is director of the Columbia Justice Lab's Probation and Parole Reform Project. She says people under parole supervision have to abide by upwards of 15 different rules. There could be a curfew, it could be uh, they can't move without permission, um, they have to get permission in order to do a whole variety of things. Um, and, and you can be sent back to prison or jail depending the assessment of that violation um, for breaking any one of those rules or for being alleged to have broken any one of those rules. Philip DeGrange is a supervising attorney at the Legal Aid Society. He says New York City policies around technical parole violations are excessive and unnecessarily disrupt the lives of parolees. They go back into the community and, and they're released from prison when they've reconnected with family members, when they're uh, trying to pay their rent. And so it can actually have a counterproductive effect on public safety because you're, you're, you're destabilizing lives, you're, you're causing homelessness, and, and, and you're, you're, you're causing joblessness as well. We reached out to the New York State Department of Corrections for comment on the issue of parole violations and the Less is More Act, but they didn't reply. The bill would limit offenses and jail time permitted for technical violations of parole. DeGrange says it would also add new pathways for due process for parolees accused of violations. And the Less More Act would really uh, stem uh, the, and, and prevent such high levels of incarceration going forward. But it would also ensure that, uh, that there'd be a lot less discretion and, and uh, a, lot, a lot more fairness, honestly, for, for, for people who are on, on parole. For Uptown Radio, I'm Karen Manirajo. Century 21 stores announced that they will be relaunching after declaring bankruptcy in September. The New York-based company says they plan to open a brand new nine-story location in the fall of this year. The twist? The store will be in South Korea. Kate Stockram reports. Standing outside a former Century 21 location at 66th and Broadway, the relaunch of a beloved brand seems a long way off. The revolving doors are motionless taped with paper signs that read, Store Closed, in capital letters. Century 21 was started 60 years ago by the Pugini family. After the bankruptcy went through, the family and a private investor purchased the Century 21 brand name and logo back at auction. That cost $9 million, a big leap from the starting bid of 800000 The market might have been surprised by the final cost of the Century 21 logo, but Professor Catherine Harrigan of Columbia Business School says buying back your brand after bankruptcy is not unusual. I've seen this before, where entrepreneurs just don't have enough cash to pay their bills, and then go back and pick off using C 
savings that were not committed to the, the, the company, personal savings, and buying off whatever was valuable and going off and starting the company someplace else. So it's relatively common to keep the name and logo even when a brand goes under. But why move from New York City, America's fashion capital, to Busan, South Korea? Almost anything that is kind of trendy would probably be popular in your high fashion Asian markets. So going and launching some Century 21 stores in South Korea is simply relying on the fact that it probably had a following among trendy, young, upscale shoppers who might recognize the name. Century 21's new president, Mark Benitez, says in an email that Century 21 was for many years a must-go destination for tourists visiting New York from Asia. He noted that the Gindi family had already reached a deal to bring the brand to Korea before the pandemic. He said he believes Korea is one of the safest markets to open a brick-and-mortar store. He also said the company has plans to reopen in the U.S. I'm so excited. That's Arlena Barkova-Cole. She's a children's book author living in Brooklyn. She says that even after her nearby location on 86th Street closed, she still regularly sports her favorite Century 21 purchases. I mean, I just gotta say that probably about 85% of my wardrobe is from Century. So it's like, we used to go there a lot. Arlena may have to wait a while for her next Century 21 shopping spree. Mark Benitez said there is no direct timeline for relaunching the stores in New York City. Kate Stockram, Columbia Radio News. Well, that does it for this edition of Uptown Radio. We hope you enjoy the show. Executive producer Catherine Smith ran our show. Leading our staff of reporters were senior producers Nicole McNulty, with help from assistant producer Renee Roden. Senior editor Fei Lu and assistant editor Karen Manirajo led our copy team. Jack Truett managed our website today, and Leila Dos, Kate Stockerham, and Katie Anastas brought us the news. Our instructors Sally Herships, Ben Shapiro, and Patty Hirsch advised our staff from New York, Massachusetts, and California. I'm Marcelia Martin. And I'm Haley Zhao. Uptown Radio is available on iTunes, SoundCloud, and uptownradio.org on Friday evenings. From all of us here at Uptown Radio, thanks for listening and stay safe.